It's just after midnight, and you know what that means. You're listening to The Witching Hour on Channel X. October 13th. Some call it the dyslexic Halloween. But we call it the anniversary of the release of Halloween Part 5. And tonight, I brought in a friend of mine who's as big of a fan of the Halloween movies as I am. Maybe even bigger, I'm not sure. But let's welcome Nearing to the Fold. Hey, Nearing, what's up? I think it's bigger only in terms of weight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know about that. I'm, you know, taller than you, so maybe that uh, adds to the weight as well. <laughs> Today, in 1989, October 13th, was the release of Halloween 5. That was the follow-up to the, I guess you might call it the comeback Michael Myers movie, Halloween 4, which I absolutely love that one. A lot of people didn't like it as much as part four. Personally, I like it maybe 80 to 90% as much. There are just a few things that I really wish they wouldn't have put in the movie. What do you think of Halloween 5? Oh, as you know, I'm not as big a fan as, as you are. It's got some really positive elements. I think the main protagonist is a, a fun gal to follow through the movie. It's got some detracting elements that take it away from me, but it's a it's an uneven franchise from start to finish. So it, it's a entry that deserves its place in the lineup. I think I can agree with that. Although I know you uh, you do dislike it a little bit more than I do. The biggest problem I have was the introduction of, I referred to him by that Stephen King character name, the walking dude. You just keep seeing these inserts of the boots or whatever of this dude walking with a like a briefcase or something throughout the entire movie. And it seems they have nothing to do with it until the very end for what I also consider just an inserted ending, which didn't really need to be there. I think if you removed that guy completely, it'd be a lot better. And it, oh, it, I'll agree with that. I mean, the, the, the problem is I think they were anticipating that the next installment was going to come out pretty quickly. So what they were doing with the walking dude is obviously trying to set up, tee up the ball for the Cult of Thorns storyline that we saw in the, in the very problematic part six. Yeah, I'll agree with you. There, there's no payoff whatsoever in part five. So you could excise all of that 100% and, and not affect the main storyline at all. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I read recently that complete part of the story, The Walking Dude, was added afterward. It wasn't even supposed to be in it originally. Who's the producer? Akkad? Mm -hmm. He apparently, for some reason, wanted them to add that. And maybe that's connected to what you said. Maybe he knew that they were going to be doing that Cult of Thorn deal in the, the next movie, which I am not a fan of. But yeah, if they could just like retroactively remove that completely from the movie, I think people would like it a lot more. Yeah. Now, objectively... It's interesting because I, just say what you want about the Halloween franchise being uneven. It is still a franchise that's taken some leaps that no other franchises have. It is not uh, a, a usual thing to have a franchise have four different, maybe five different timelines within the franchise. That's something that's, that's unique to Halloween. And, I, and other movies or other franchises now are, are following suit. But what you can say about the uh, man in black, the uh, the walking dude, is that it was long before there was an MCU, it was the first um, sign of Easter eggs in a movie. 
Yeah. You know, this was an Easter egg for six. It was a bad Easter egg, and part six <laughs> is a bad movie. A rotten um, Easter egg. But but decades before Marvel did it, uh, you know, the Halloween franchise was planning Easter eggs with the walking dude. Now, one thing that's unfortunate about the walking dude, particularly what we learn about him later, is that it's a callback character to all the way back to part one. This is the guy who's walking with um, Dr. Loomis after oh. Michael Myers initially escapes saying, hi, uh, hi, how did you not take the precautions I told you to take? Right. Um, that guy is, huh. is the leader of the cult of Thorn, but it's a different actor. Right. Um, so not everyone always makes that connection. Yeah. I actually didn't even know that till you just mentioned it. I, I, I guess I haven't spent as much time in the, uh, the Halloween universe as I should have. <laughs> you need to get back to Haddonfield. I do. In fact, I, I wish somebody would make like a theme park called Haddonfield. That was just like the city in the movie. So we could go experience it. Not a theme park, but one place you can visit is, um, now I'm going to talk about one for a second that, uh, stoop that Laurie sits on while she's waiting to get picked up for her babysitting gig by Annie. The people who own that house traditionally will have 30 or 40 pumpkins on their front porch. Wow. Saying, you know, please feel free to grab a pumpkin and, and take a picture on our stoop. So that house is very inviting to Halloween fans. I don't know if it's still owned by the same people, but years ago it was. And of course, you know, that to see the, uh, the the Myers house now it's it's still standing but you have to go somewhere else to see it because they had to move the whole house. Wow, where was it and where did it move to? Do you know? It was out in L.A. and I, I don't have the exact town at my finger. It's like like a suburb of L.A. And the story, as I know it, is um someone purchased the property, but the city told him you're going to have to tear that house down. And this guy wasn't even a Halloween fan. He didn't uh, do this because it was a landmark because of the movie. He just didn't want to tear the house down. So he actually moved the entire house about two blocks over. And the house stands now to this day. It's just not where it was. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Picking up and moving an entire house. I can't believe that was easier than just smashing the thing. But, you know. (laughs) Do we know if he was even aware that it was the Halloween house? My understanding is no. My understanding Uh, is he found out after the fact, oh, this was the Halloween house? If he knew what it was, even if he wasn't a fan, maybe that might explain why he decided to have it moved. But other than that, I I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't just tear the house down, like grab some hammers or whatever and take care of it. Yeah. Now, circling back to uh, five, my two biggest complaints... And uh, I think we've talked about them in the past, one of which I think you'll share, the other of which I know uh, you don't. The biggest complaint I have is those ill-advised effort to put comedy in the movie through the form of the two bumbling um, sheriff's deputies. Those guys just heighten my cringe level to 11 every time they're on screen. They have their own horrible bumbling soundtrack their their little theme song when they enter a scene and they just don't fit the overall mood of the movie at all it's jarring whenever they show up okay i've heard you say that before and i haven't rewatched the movie since i've heard you say that so i'll have to pay attention to that when i do rewatch it and see what that is i do know 
the cops. It's just, I don't remember there being like a, a theme song playing with them. I'll have to pay attention when I watch it again to catch it's that. It's like a Warner brothers, uh, ca- um, cartoon, you know, where like the, the, the bumbling vulture shows up. Boom, 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 yeah. What's the other major thing? You don't line, like and this is where you and I absolutely differ is I thought the ending of four was so uh-huh. effective. I was really looking to see where they take that to have Jamie be possessed or inhabited or infected with um, Michael Myers as evil. And then five, in my mind, kind of shits all over that by having her go right back to being the, the, the you know, the, the, the heroine of, of this movie with a different uh, female um, adult in, in, instead of, um, her cousin. Now it's that brunette friend of her cousins. I really wish they had stayed with the idea of, of her being infected with the darkness. I thought that was a much more interesting idea. Yeah. And I think it's maybe where we differ on that is more about like trying to define what would really happen to a kid that was in that traumatic situation. Obviously you've already pointed out what's wrong with it from your view. From my view, it's almost mirroring Michael Myers, except that she didn't stay evil. She was cured or whatever. But both of them, after killing at a young age, became mute. Myers did that. And he's never spoken again to this day that we're aware of. Now she, Jamie Lloyd, obviously in part five, has this muting, which a lot of children actually do get when they've been through a traumatic experience. So that's where I thought it was actually a bit of realism in the movie. And I know a lot of people wanted to see her actually become a, a killer as a little kid. But I mean, the truth is even Michael Myers, you know, there are adults around. So they were able to easily stop him and overpower him <laughs> and put him in a hospital. So, you know, obviously Jamie Lloyd wouldn't escape the cop and the adults that were around her at the end of part four and just go off and become a psycho killer. At least that's the way I view it. That is She's a, a great moment, though, at the end of four. Oh, yeah. When, when she comes out and Loomis doesn't even hesitate he's got the gun up he's ready he, he knows exactly what's happened and, yeah. and, and you know the, the the officer is like pulling loomis's arm down yeah such a powerful moment because it's like he knows even though it's a child he knows that not getting rid of this evil right now will result in a lot of death in the future he's he's been right. following it around for many years already but yeah with her i personally think it was appropriate to make her mute in the next movie from the trauma. And uh, I actually think that's one of the highlights. One of the biggest things that I like about the movie is, well, how well she's able to act while being mute. As a matter of fact, I've been saying for a long time that I think both Danielle Harris and Donald Pleasance gave incredible performances in part five. If Even if you don't like the story, I think both of them deserved awards for what they did, especially at her age. Yeah, I can't take anything away from Danielle Harris's uh, performance. I mean, she's she, at a young age, she was just a wonderful, wonderful actress. They really put her through her paces both in four and five. Right. Um, didn't she went on to do a um, a Bruce Willis movie? Did, wasn't she in like the Last Boy Scout or something? Yeah, just a few years later, I think she might have been like eleven or thirteen years old or something like that when she did the Last Boy Scout. She's the foul mouth kid. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, coming back to the franchise later in life to, uh, to play Annie in the Rob Zombie movie. 
Yeah, she's a terrific actress. She really is. Something that I hadn't thought about is it is an interesting idea if we accept the idea of a parallel between her character and Michael Myers. Yeah. Then does that suggest there was something different in Jamie that ultimately rejected the darkness, whereas there was something in Michael that welcomed it in? I don't know if their whole cult of thorn thing was involved in that story outside of the walking guy, but I mean, maybe because Michael was a product of this cult of thorn, maybe that's why he embraced the evil and, and she was not part of that. So maybe that's why she did not go in the same direction. If you look at the director's cut or producer's cut or whatever the heck that, uh, uh, you know, the, the hard to find pirated bootleg cut of uh, Halloween yeah. six, Michael Myers at one point embraced Jamie a little bit. I hated that movie so much when I first saw it that I don't think I've seen it more than twice. So I don't really remember the whole well, the Jamie part of part six. She's, she's giving birth at the beginning of Halloween six. Oh, okay. And um, a nurse or one of the cult members uh, helps her uh, escape and she runs with the baby. And the baby is like the, the, the target or the end goal of the cult of Thorn because that baby is going to be the next tattoo bearer. But in the director's cut, it is strongly suggested that Jamie's baby was fathered by Michael Myers, which is, <laughs> which is mercifully <laughs> cut out of the theatrical release. Thank God. Too yeah. much. Uh, yeah, we don't want to get too deep into the uh, uh, family affairs there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's get into a little bit uh, about the entire series, if you don't mind. Let's maybe give our general impression of the entire series, like movie by movie. Um, No, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, why don't you go ahead and start off and I'll just kind of chime in. Well, I mean, we start off with one. And the thing that's amazing about one, aside from how perfect the film it is, and and it's, it's just objectively, it's just a perfect film is that it's the trailblazer this is we we look through at it now through the lens of 40 years of of you know time that's passed since then and and a a ton of really lesser imitators what you have to picture when you're looking at halloween is it's 1978 and you're going to see this and this is the first of its kind. I, I don't even consider uh, Halloween to be a slasher movie because at the time there was no such thing as a slasher movie. If I'm being honest, right. I, I look at Halloween, I view it as an art house film. Yeah. This, this was, this was an auteur at the top of his game who'd been given what really was kind of a pedestrian idea. In fact, it even had a, um, a pedestrian title. The original working title was the babysitter murders. Yeah. And this is a guy who made a diamond, a diamond of art out of this pedestrian idea. The, the music is perfect. The lighting is perfect. The, the, the opening scene, um, you know, with the, with the steady cam yeah. and a really long uninterrupted cut with that steady cam. Yeah. The one um, shot. It's a feast for the sense. You've, you've got this beautiful visual stuff going on with that carpenter music in the background and it's telling a story that while many times uh, imitated after the fact and in 1978 this blazed the trail 
Yeah, it really was. As far as I know, it was the beginning of that entire style of movie, which, you know, most movies that copied it didn't really take the same kind of art house approach that you were just talking about. They turned it into more of a quote unquote slasher movie. But yeah, this generally is looked at as the one that started that all. It directly, I've seen and heard that it directly inspired, you know, Friday the 13th. Oh, that's that's absolutely true. That's, That's a direct impact. Friday the 13th. Sean Cunningham was uh, sitting home one night and maybe he was watching um, Halloween on television and he, he literally called up Victor Brooke Miller, the, his screenwriter, and said, hey, drop everything you're doing. We're going to rip off Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Those nice. are the exact words he said. And, and you know, I, I, people uh, view that as a um, not a noble undertaking. Here's a guy who's like, this is making money. This is popular. I can do something just as good. And he cranked out a multi-million dollar franchise. The, those are the two that, that kind of paved the way. You know, when you, when you think about people who, directors who we can say changed the course of American cinema, um, you know, obviously Steven Spielberg creates the summer blockbuster with Jaws. John Carpenter and Sean Cunningham create the slasher movie and, that pretty much informed what teenagers were going to see for the entire decade of the 80s. You know, it's one interesting aspect about that, that he was trying to rip off Halloween. But as we know, the first Friday the 13th movie didn't have this, a child grown up into a killer. It was kind of a ruse. Uh, You were thinking maybe that was it, but it was actually the mother the whole time. I don't know if he had planned ahead of time to make Jason not become this child turned adult full-blown killer until the second movie going back to the idea and again i I don't begrudge these guys one bit the ending of friday the 13th is a ripoff of carrie you know they were like oh that's great she's in the canoe here come the cops it's nice and i I believe and don't hold me this but i believe it was tom savini who had just seen carrie and was like hey what if something jumped out of the lake and got her I, i think until that moment no one even had any idea that jason was going to be a character in the movie yeah, as a matter of fact, I lean toward that being the case because why would you want a character to actually be in a movie but not appear until the denouement when everything is already over and just pop up in the last few seconds? That right. wouldn't, well, and, wouldn't and seem course, like you'd think thinking, too much about that. From a storytelling point of view, I, I could certainly understand that Victor Brooke Miller wasn't too crazy about Jason showing up at the end because the whole movie is this mother who lost her son and is trying to keep other children from dying in this place that she views as dangerous. So if you talk to Victor Brooke Miller, he doesn't view her as a villain at all. This is a a screenplay he wrote about the ferocity of a mother's love. And once you make Jason come out of that lake, then it's like, well, then why didn't you just go home? If you've been alive the whole time, what what were you doing? Right. (laughs) Maybe Why do you just go home and say, hey, mom, I'm okay? Maybe he just kind of kind of likes being a lake monster. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Like, hey, this zombie thing is pretty cool. I don't have to come out <laughs> unless someone's up there to kill. Circling back to Halloween, it's, just a, it's a perfect movie. I mean, what, what, what's your take on it? Oh, I agree with everything that you've said so far about it. it. It's absolutely the beginning of that entire genre of movies. Even though most of those movies became like watered down, filtered versions of the original to where they, they no longer had the artful aspects 
of the original that they're trying to copy. But I mean, you get to the point where even now, I'm sure you could just go to Google and look up and find like dozens of other theatrically released movies from the 80s that are direct ripoffs of that style but that you didn't even know existed because they just never went anywhere because they it didn't so bad. Yeah. Basically, they... basically the formula for any horror movie in the eighties was some really traumatic shit happened once and it happened on a holiday. And so, you know, 20 years from now, some dude is going to go around every year on that holiday and, and just, you know, wreck hell. And the best spoof of that was Eli Roth when the two movies were together and they made Grindhouse. Between the two movies, uh, Planet Horror and Death Proof, they did some spoof Grindhouse trailers. And one of yeah. them was Eli Roth made Thanksgiving. And it was a horror movie <laughs> based right. on Thanksgiving. Some, some kid who'd been traumatized by a Thanksgiving dinner grew up to become the Thanksgiving killer. That seems to be a common thread in the majority of them. It's always, you never saw in Halloween what happened to the kid to traumatize him to begin with. But beginning with, say, Friday the 13th, they they show that he was like ignored and treated badly. Well, he was supposedly treated badly by other kids because he was deformed and the camp counselors ignored him when he was drowning. So they're responsible for his death and comes back later to get revenge. And that is exactly what all these other movies do. Like you were just saying, it's, it's always some kid who was treated badly, had something happen to him and comes back later to take revenge, you know, comes back from the grave, so to speak. My bloody Valentine, happy birthday to me, New Year's evil. Well, I, I was going to say St. Patrick's Day, like Leprechaun, but that's a whole, that's a whole different <laughs> franchise. Now, here's one thing I, I learned uh, during this quarantine that I did not know. Being, being a Friday the 13th fan, I did not know that until this past summer. Uh, you, you know Friday the 13th, the original. It, it opens yeah. um, with those two counselors making out sure. uh, after they've all gotten done singing Michael Row the Boat Ashore and Kumbaya. They're, they're making out in the, the, the one cabin. It's Barry and Claudette are the characters' names. Yeah. And they get stabbed by Mrs. Voorhees in 19, whatever it is, 58, I think. And then we fast forward 20 years to Steve Christie's family opening the camp up again. One thing I didn't know, because I had the opportunity this past summer to read the original Victor Brooke Miller screenplay. When she kills Barry and Claudette, she's not just killing them because she blames counselors in general uh, for letting Jason drown in the lake. Barry and Claudette are specifically the two counselors who were tasked with watching that day. Really? So, yeah. So the first two people that she kills are the two people that are directly responsible for Jason's drown. Yeah. I had no idea about that either. I've never heard that. Well, I don't know where, if it's ever been mentioned anywhere else, it just in, in the screenplay Miller showed the drowning and showed, you know, Barry and Claudette getting on up against a tree while, you know, over their shoulder, some child's drowning that they're not watching. And that would make sense as to why there's the the joke about whenever somebody has sex in one of those movies, that's when they get killed. That's right. Because it's directly related. That's what they were doing while ignoring him dying. Uh, I see. Halloween gave rise (laughs) to Halloween 2, which Carpenter did begrudgingly. Carpenter felt that he told the entire story that he wanted to tell in one. 
but they, you know, they backed a, uh, a big dump truck full of cash up to his driveway and dumped it out. He's like, Oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> right. And so that's where the sister angle came from because that was really the only element of two that uh, Carpenter found interesting is to tell some new part of the story, which is that Laurie is Michael Myers, sister, which I always thought that reveal really kind of uh, there, there's a scene in one that becomes uncomfortable now where Lori's father, the realtor has asked her on her way to school. Will she drop off the keys at the old Myers house, which is kind of bad taste on, on behalf of her adoptive father right? Uh, to send his daughter to the place where this big family trauma happened that she mercifully can't remember. So let's rub her nose in it a little bit. And have her drop the keys off. So she's his sister now, which gives it gives Michael Myers a purpose that he didn't have in one. What what made him so scary in one was there really just is no reason why he's doing all this other than he's evil. And two gave him a purpose which was more immediately understandable, but also I think kind of lessened it. It's not that he's just evil. He's trying to kill every member of his family. That's very true. And to be honest, if that was not introduced for part two, I, I don't know if I would have been as big of a fan of it uh, because mm -hmm. that actually gave not only new information, as you said, Carpenter liked, but it gave him a purpose for going after this same person. That's how I saw it. Obviously, you, in a way, thought it made it lesser, but, lesser, but I guess but I that's I the viewpoint. Overstate it. I don't mean um, significantly lesser. Two is still a very good movie. And having him um, have that as a motive, it's not my favorite of his two competing motives, but that shouldn't be um, read to mean that I think it's a bad motive. It's like saying silver is not as uh, valuable as gold, but silver is still pretty valuable. And another thing I like about part two is that Carpenter chose to, number one, to begin at the exact same spot that the first movie left off, rather than just saying, Let's make it one year later, Halloween again, and Michael Myers comes out of nowhere to kill more people. It continued the story from the exact second where it left off that same night. He also chose to take it to a different setting. Instead of him getting up and just walking around stalking more people around the neighborhood, they took it to a hospital. And to me, that made it almost like an entirely new movie while also being a continuation of the first one. So I think that was a good move on, on uh, Carpenter's part. Well, you know, once again, saying that this is a franchise that um, did a lot of things for the first time. <clears throat> like you said, to my knowledge, I can't think of any other movie where a sequel starts in the split second the other one ends so that you can really put one and two together if you want and consider them as one complete movie. That's actually um, something I've said to people over the years when they say, that they like part one, but hate part two or something like that. I usually tell them, well, I kind of consider it almost one long movie. It's just split in half. You know, it ends uh, at the end of part one and begins at the exact same second for part two. So I kind of view it as one movie, like you said. Now, one thing that I will say, and this is a complete personal preference. I think I'm overall in the minority on this, although I have found some people from time to time that agree with me. I like the music in two better than the music in one. The sort of electro pop synthesizer 
thing to the DDT to me is more effective than the piano music in part one. Yeah, I actually agree with you. And I think, think I've seen other people display that preference as well. I think the tone of the synthesizers used actually makes it scarier sounding than the original yeah. uh, piano. And while we're talking about two, you, you were mentioning the, uh, the, the setting earlier. Let's not forget that one of the things all these slasher movies, I think, try to do, but Halloween does very effectively, is it comes to places you're supposed to be safe. You're not right. going to Dracula's castle. You're not going to Frankenstein's <laughs> laboratory. Yeah. You're not wandering the moors while there's a wolf howling behind you. Halloween one, it's coming to your neighborhood. Yeah. Halloween two, is there any place you're supposed to be safer than a hospital? And even jumping back to a Halloween five for a second, the big denouement of Halloween five takes place in a police station. That's true. So, I mean, I think one of the things that's very effectively done by this whole franchise is we're coming for you where you feel the safest. That's a very good point. I never thought about it that way up almost until that point when the first Halloween came out, the majority of, you know, horror or monster movies or whatever all took place at, like you said, Dracula's castle, Dr. Frankenstein's lab, places like that, places that you would feel unsafe before anything happened. That's probably another place where this is a kind of a revolutionary movie. As you said, it brings the danger, brings the horror to where you feel safe. Right. And then since we're talking about things that Halloween did as a franchise that were revolutionary. That leads us very, very thematically into three. Yes, it does. And three, I, I'm so happy now these days to see <laughs> that three is finally getting the respect it deserves. Right. Because I, well, one thing that I know, I mean, you and I are friggin' blood brothers on. <laughs> you and I know that there is no greater film ever made than Halloween three season of the witch. Absolutely. To me, that's the ultimate Halloween being Halloween, the season uh, movie or Halloween, the holiday, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah, nothing, nothing tops that. It's actually about Halloween itself and about not only Halloween, but the uh, precursors to Halloween, the rituals that other cultures uh, performed in the past before Halloween even existed. Right. Uh, mo most movies, including Halloween itself, the Michael Myers story, most movies that call themselves Halloween movies are not about that. They're just about some killer or something that kills on Halloween. So that's one of the big breakthroughs I think this movie makes is being actually about the holiday. Right. I mean, it's not even about Halloween so much as it is about Samhain. Absolutely. And, uh, and we've got to give props to the most faithful adherent of Samhain ever, the man, the myth, the legend, Connell Cochran. <laughs> Absolutely. Far more dangerous than Michael Myers could ever be. One of the greatest movie villains of all time. And, and yeah. one of the reasons I'm going to say that he's uh, such a great movie villain, it's not something you see, particularly in 80s uh, horror movies and, and going forward. The big thing, you know, Michael Myers, and Jason, and Leatherface, and all those guys, is they are silent. They are implacable. They are like a wall of force coming at you. They can't be reasoned with. Like, like the Terminator, you can't reason with them. It's what he does. It's all he does. An element of a good villain 
that Connell Cochran brought to the table is just the joy in his villainy. Connell Cochran is having a great time in the <laughs> entire movie. And I yes. think you can make the argument that Connell Cochran might be a precursor to uh, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, I could see that. You know, you know Fred- not so much the early uh, Elm Street movies where he's really right. kind of trying to get revenge on the people who burned him up. Yeah. But later on where uh, England really kind of threw himself into the role and he was like a, he was like a, a Warner Brothers cartoon, like a, like a Bugs Bunny character. Uh, he yeah. was just feeling joy in his evil. And, and I think he kind of owes a lot of that to Connell Cox. Yeah, that's a good point. Most villains prior to that are like either Michael Myers or Count Dracula. Things that are coming at you with just indifference or anger one of those two but you get to connell cochran and he's the life of the party he's 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 making everybody happy to be around him while plotting this i don't even know the proper word to describe the size of it almost uh <laughs> it's it's a halloween apocalypse yeah apocalypse good, yeah, I mean, good word right for about it. The, everyone's so happy i mean that family's happy right up till the end they're you know? you know walking right in that this pl- this this guy who's making all these people happy is about to kill them all, but they <laughs> they don't know it, so they're extremely right. happy. He's bringing them joy. It's the best trick of all. It's a trick on the children. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, did he call it a trick or a, he call it a joke or no, what did he call be- it? I do love a good joke. It's the this is oh. the best joke of all. It's a joke on the children. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And of course, Halloween three gave us the greatest sex symbol of all time, Tom Atkins. <laughs> That's true. Tom Atkins, insp- I, I I think it was three years ago. I, I broke out Halloween three for my son, and uh, my stepdaughter and her boyfriend were all watching this movie. I figured uh, my son was a little young at the time, um, but uh, Halloween three is a perfect intro to horror movies because it's just it, it's like a really weird, dark Disney movie. And the right. sex scene comes up with Tom Atkins, Dr. Chalice, and my son turns to me and says, Dad, why would anyone do that with Dr. Chalice? <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand, son. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There, there was a time when uh, a big cheesy mustache was considered a, uh, you know, a, a chick magnet. Well, and there was a time, and I'm going to say late, 70s early 80s where what we thought of as a sex symbol as a as as an american culture were these kind of slovenly beer guzzling slobs you you look at like nick nolte in 48 hours or joe don baker in anything Um, you know these guys did not have chiseled chests these guys weighed 200 and 60 pounds all of it was beer (laughs) they lived in hovels they were usually passed out on the floor so you know among those those guys uh tom atkins dr chalice would be considered a real catch i could spend hours just talking about every detail i love from that movie i I love the opening you know credits with the computer screen forming the lines of the of the jack-o'-lantern yeah. Uh, once again, all the all the great John Carpenter music. I mean, it's it's different, uh, mostly different music than Halloween and Halloween Two, but 
I think at least the style of it was closer to the Halloween two synthesizers, yeah, still, which still very recognizably uh, Carpenter or or influenced by Carpenter. Not not the Halloween theme by any stretch of the imagination. As long as we're on three, let's mention even if briefly that this was really the direction that Carpenter wanted to go in the beginning was right. to make this series uh, anthology series of movies having a completely different story to release every year for Halloween. That kind of got a wrench thrown in it when they demanded to have another Myers movie as Halloween 2. So that's probably what threw people off seeing Halloween 3 and getting mad that Michael Myers wasn't in it. They were led to believe by having the first two movies about that character that they automatically thought the third story would be a follow-up to the second. Right. Um, And, And I don't know whether to blame studios for this or to blame audiences or test audiences or who, but anthology franchises have never really gotten off the ground period. I mean, we, we just discussed, you know, Carpenter's frustration with what he wanted to do with the Halloween franchise. I know that at one point the mission impossible franchise was going to be the kind of deal where each movie would be about a different team from, from the IMF. And the only thing that would, would link them all together would be that mission impossible banner across the title. Yeah, that you know that never even got off the launch pad. Fast and Furious, I know with three, they tried to uh, make it about uh, another character other than Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, and that fizzled immediately, and they went right back to form for four. Yeah, um, maybe it's audiences and test audiences just won't accept other people in these recognizable franchises, or maybe the studios just get skittish. But it's a shame because I think anthology franchises could be a really cool, interesting thing to do, you know, if done well. Yeah. Um, But, you know, they're just dead on arrival. I mean, we even have franchises of single anthology movies turning into franchises of more anthology movies. Like one of my favorite or two of my favorites of all time, uh, Creepshow and Creepshow 2, both Mm. anthology movies about separate bunch of separate stories in each one maybe that doesn't apply that rule that you mentioned doesn't really apply as much when it's a movie of anthology stories different stories within the movie itself right because and and we've seen some of those the twilight zone movie and uh tales from the dark side the movie so and it's isn't it interesting that all those things are always in horror yeah the horror is what lends itself to that kind of a formula well, another uh, series I can think of off the top of my head that actually was supposed to be an anthology series of full-length movies was Tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was after they had been out for several years as a TV show. They put out, which was the first one, uh, Demon Knight? Or was it... Yeah, Demon Knight was yeah. first, and then Bordello of Blood. Yeah, which I, I liked both of those movies a lot, and I was looking forward to to another one but they never continued it as a matter of fact i can't remember if it was at the end of part one or the end of part two at the bottom of the credits they said the next movie coming soon was going to be called dead easy which was supposed to be like a zombie movie that takes place in new orleans which i i really thought would have been cool the way they made movies but we never got to see it maybe the best monologue ever delivered the world is going to change tonight doctor I'm glad you'll be able to watch. Oh, and uh, happy Halloween. Yes. To anybody who who has not seen that, watch Halloween 3, 
look at it as a, as its own movie and especially pay attention to the little speech that that uh, Connell Cochran gives after he has the, the the good doctor tied up in a chair. I, right. I, I agree with Nearing here that that is probably the most sinister speech ever delivered in a, a horror movie. And he is just, that actor is just he's just chewing up the scenery with that. He's he's fantastic. What was his name? Dan O'Herlihy. Dan O'Herlihy. Yes. Was he Irish or Scottish? I'm going to say Irish, but don't huh. hold me to that. All so right, then now. I guess that uh, gives us four. Now, one thing I want to talk about right off the bat with four that I really like about four is the opening credits. Yeah. Because one and two obviously have very similar credits. In fact, I kind of, I kind of like the opening credits to two better than one where the, the, the jack-o'-lantern actually opens and there's that horrific skull oh, right. in the center of the pumpkin. Um, but it's, you know, they're very similar and Halloween three, even though it's a different song, it's still very evocative of, of those one and two opening credits, you know, the, the, the computer animated lines, uh, drawing a, a jack-o'-lantern as the, the yeah. music is synthetic. What I liked about four, the opening credits is it's completely different. It's a, this soft orange font over these beautiful scenes of a rural autumn Halloween, these homesteads and then houses, you know, getting ready for Halloween. There's Halloween decorations up. It, it's just, it's beautiful. I, I, I would tell anyone if, if, if you're familiar with four, but you haven't watched the opening in a, in a while, go watch the opening credits to four and just, just bathe in that, in that beautiful lush photography of four that is completely different from any of the title sequences that have come up to, uh, to date. Right. Um, and it, and it, it really launched and, and four, you know, I, I know you feel about four the same way I do that. Okay. You know, all the babies wanted Michael Myers back. Well, here he is, you baby. Right. And that's valid, but they do yeah. do one hell of a bang up job with bringing him back in four. Oh yeah. When you were just uh, mentioning music, that reminded me, we forgot to mention one specific thing about Halloween three before moving on to four. Not just the great music uh, in the score, but the yeah the the greatest marketing theme song of all time for the the mask company Silver Shamrock. <laughs> you mentioned it still Halloween, Halloween, you and Halloween. me and everybody listening to this is now going to yeah. have that song in their head for the rest of the evening. Yeah, I, I mean, I could put that on loop and just be in a coma over it for hours. Halloween Four, bringing back Michael Myers, was obviously a product of misinformed audiences hating part three because it didn't have Michael Myers in it. So then the, probably the producers decided, oh, if we want to keep making money, we have to bring Myers back. So let's do that, which gives you a big eye roll. But at the same time, if you see part four, I'm glad it happened just right. because of that movie. Cause it's so great. I actually yeah, consider I mean, it. On a philosophical level, I resent it. Well, at the same time, I have to admit, damn, it's an effective way to bring him back. Right, and it's effective shit that they do with him. Yeah, you know, the the opening scene in in four, you know, where uh, the, the the two people are going to the asylum to pick him up. He's been in a coma for ten years ever since uh, he and Loomis burned up. Yeah, and of course, the effect on Loomis of being in that 
freaking fiery infernos. He's got a little bit of a scar on his face. Loomis yeah. has a little bit of a scar. Uh, um, <laughs> but, you know, just that asylum, they're, they're clearly trying to evoke an image of the asylum as hell. And boy, is it ever. You know, it's, it's just horrific. Probably not in a lot of others, but in my, my opinion, part four is the best film of the entire Myers series. A lot of people say, no, it has to be the first one because it's the first, but I think four is actually a, an even better movie than the first one. I won't go that far up the hill with you, but I'll go pretty far up that hill. I mean, it, it, it's a great movie. Very nice touch. Having breaking with the formula and having everyone in four know he's back. He's coming for this house. We need to fortify ourselves. They're all working together, which is, you know, not something you usually see in these type movies. I like the introduction of his uh, his niece, Jamie Lloyd, uh, because obviously Michael Myers needs a target to exist as a character. <laughs> but I, I think at, at I don't even remember how young she was, Danielle Harris, when she played that role. But I'm extremely impressed with how good of an actor she was at that young of an age. Yeah, I, I don't think you can take anything away from her. From her ability, I mean, they they put her through some really rough scenes in there, and and she's just yeah. a friggin' trooper through the whole movie. You know, there's not one there's not one moment in that movie when you don't believe in her. Yeah, she's she's very believable, and I mean, maybe that's her skill, maybe that's the director's skill, maybe it's a combination of both. But I, I've seen plenty of movies with kids where they obviously weren't a trained actor, and it you know nothing really came across as believable from them. So. Uh, it especially sticks out because I've seen so many that are the opposite of that. And I'm um, going to say we're talking about four, the, I, and I don't have, I do not have a reason for why I find this sequence so effective. But man, I do. When they're on the roof of the house, it, it, it's yeah. like they're in another world. They, they are surrounded by pitch black darkness, and the only part of the world that exists is what's on that roof. And it's everything you need to know about their world is on that roof. There's evil, there's innocence in the form of Jamie, and there's the adult trying to protect the innocence from the evil. Yeah. That's it. That's the, 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 the core elements right there. And it's all taking place on a stage where if you move off the stage, you fall to your death. It's almost like it is reduced to a, uh, what you'd call a black box theater or even just a, a stage play. Because they literally are in this little small space where that's all they have to work with. You can't leave it or you fall off the roof and, you know, either severely get severely injured or fall to your death, one of the two. But you also have that danger while you're still within the space. And then, of course, um, we've already covered this. But then, of course, the, the ending is just, oh, it's so powerful. Yeah, I think they definitely wanted her to, in that way, to follow in the... I don't want to say footsteps, but follow the arc, at least of the early Michael Myers. I mean, they even, what was it in this one or was it in five where they actually gave her the same outfit that Myers had? It's four. It's the end of four. She's wearing the clown outfit. Okay. Yeah. They, they even tell you right away when she has her Halloween costume on that this might something be another Michael gonna, Myers. Something bad's going to happen to a female member of her family. Let's watch. Yes. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's see when that happens. Then next is five, and I think we've, we've covered five. The only other thing I'm going to say, uh, just to throw one more uh, glop of shit at five, is I <laughs> hate the mask in five. 
Oh, really? Out of all the masks, I, I, I can pick. Like, if you put, you know, five Michael Myerses up in a lineup, I can pick out the the, the part five one like that. Ah, okay. I guess I don't pay as much attention to the masks and specific movies, but I do remember watching some sort of documentary on that one, mm. and I think they used more than one. They somehow they had to go back to reshoot some scene or something like that. And they couldn't find the mask. <laughs> they literally couldn't find it. So they just had to have someone bring whatever piece of crap mask they could find. And they had to use what they were stuck with. So I don't know if you mean throughout the whole movie or if it's one that just appears I in a few parts. I remember the mask best in the police station. Now there is one scene where he looks very effective. I think this is five. I don't think this is four where she's having visions of him and there's lightning outside the bedroom and he's sitting up behind the bed. Is that five or is that four? I do remember that. I, I can't remember which of the two it is though. He looks good there. He looks good there. I just, I, I just remember really kind of pushing back from, from the way he looked at the end of the movie. Part six. <laughs> Part six is, I can't say it's unfairly trashed because every bit of trashing that it receives is 100% fair. But what I will say is, I'm going to feel like Luke Skywalker talking to his father. There is <laughs> some good in it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the family stuff in the town, in the beginning of the movie. You take out all the, the cult of thorn crap and uh, Jamie running and trying to save her baby and all that stuff. And you can really kind of get rid of Paul Rudd too because his character just doesn't work for me even though I know you know he, yeah. he has a he has a role there but the, I, I find the stuff with the family you know the tyrannical abusive father the wallflower mom the daughter who's a, a grown woman has her own child and she she's forced for economic reasons to live at home but she's trying to shield her own son from the abuse that her father can lash out with pretty, pretty easily. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the first, maybe 40 minutes of that movie. But yeah, but then the cold of thorn stuff takes over and it all goes straight to shit. From part six forward is where I, I'm kind of going to have less of a memory because I didn't really like anything after part five. So I didn't watch it more afterward. Like I'd watch it once. Maybe, maybe I've seen it twice. Right. But in general, I'm not going to remember as much about it. Uh, the, the one thing I can say about part six that came out of it that was good is I really like the song that, that was like the theme song from it. And Fools Shine On. Right. Uh, forget the band, but I love the song, but not, uh, not a big fan of the movie, especially the, you know, not to jump forward to the ending right off the bat, but it seems like it was tacked on because I think, didn't uh, Donald Pleasance die before that movie came out? Yeah, they they had a director's cut, which it's both better and worse. It's better in the sense that it's got more of a narrative flow, but it's worse in that it really introduces some silly crap um, okay. to the point where Tommy Doyle, Paul Rudd, is being chased by Michael Myers and he spreads out this like circle of magic stones on the floor. And when Michael Myers steps across the circle, he's suddenly frozen in place in the circle. And 
that's just the silliest fucking thing anyone's ever heard of. Right. So if I have this right, the director's cut tested abysmally because the whole movie is a piece of shit. But the but particularly the ending, no one no one dug the ending. So they called everyone back to recut it and reshoot some stuff. And unfortunately, between point A and point B, Donald Pleasance had passed away. So they kind of like Carrie Fisher in in the last Star Wars movie. They they did the best they had with the footage of him they had. Yeah. And then they cut some real corners to the point where the ending of the theatrical release, it just doesn't make any narrative sense at all. He gets everyone, to, uh, Loomis gets everyone to a car. They're all going to drive off to safety. He's like, I'll be right back. I have some business I have to take care of or something I need to attend to. Right. And he goes back in the building and we just hear him scream. Yeah. And then there's a shot of the mask on the ground. <laughs> So yeah. something what happened I don't know something bad happened um and that's the end. Yeah, I remember when I first saw that after seeing that final that scene that you just described, I was actually angry that they <laughs> they released that. Like why why would you do that? Why well, this I, is I'll obviously terrible. I'll make you angrier when you think about it this way too. Okay. I said earlier that what what makes Halloween really unique is that it's got I think no less than five timelines. The first right. timeline is parts one, two, four, five, and six. The second timeline is the standalone bubble of three. The third timeline is one, two, H2O resurrection, because uh, H2O is a direct sequel to two. So that's the third timeline. Right. The fourth timeline are the Rob Zombie movies that exist in a timeline all of their own. Sure. And then the fifth timeline is one and then the 2018 because to the 2018 movie wipes everything out of continuity up to and including two. So where I'm going with this is if your favorite Michael Myers timeline is the one that includes one, two, four, and five, that stupid ass ending of Loomis screaming and Myers's mask on the ground. That's the end. For the timeline you like. You're very correct. Now I'm even more angry. That that's the end of the one that I like. I hate you'll Halloween. You'll Michael Myers again, but you'll never see your Michael Myers again. Right. He, he died somehow. <laughs> somehow. Now this could have been uh, headed off at the past by never inserting the walking dude into part four or into part five, sorry. And never allowing that to lead them to this Cult of Thorn movie thing. I think we could fix that with a time machine. Just uh, just cut that off at the pass. Well, and ironically enough, that takes us right into H2O because that's what they tried to do. They tried to get a time machine. Yeah. They said, okay, we're going we're gonna to go back to Halloween 2 and we're going to pretend nothing after Halloween 2 ever happened. And I give them props. I, I wish it was you know props in service of a better movie, but I give them props for... That was a bold thing to do. Normally, when you're making a sequel, you're you're kind of handcuffed by that magic word, canon. What is canon and what is not canon? And right. you're, you're handcuffed by what's gone before. And so I have to give the, the producers and the director of, of H2O props for saying, nah, fuck all that. We're, we're going to keep the ones we like and just throw the, the ones we don't over the side. Right. I mean, I don't know if any movies had done or any series had done that before, but that is kind of a good way to uh, 
get yourself out of a corner. Just say, hey, we're going to pretend that never happened. Now buy a ticket for our next movie. <laughs> because if we didn't ignore the last one, we couldn't make another one. And Yeah, exactly. And I, I hear that I haven't seen it happen yet, or maybe I have and I'm forgetting it. But I've heard tell of other people getting that idea. I, I know there was a, I don't think it's going to happen now, but there was a time when they were going to make a an alien movie that was going to be a direct sequel to Aliens and pretend that Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection had never happened. Yeah, I, I heard about that. Who's the director that was going to make it? The uh, the guy who made District 9, Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know he was attached to one, and I couldn't remember, but maybe that's the one that we're talking about, the one where they were. About. I think it was his idea to have it be a direct sequel to Alien. I'm so tired of that idea being used now that I, I hate it whenever somebody says they're going to do that. Right. But I guess it's fine if they make a good movie. Which is the exact opposite of what happened with Halloween H2O. <laughs> I mean, Correct. Halloween H2O is not abysmal like Halloween 6 is. It's just bland and boring. Yeah. Which are two words you really don't want to use when you're describing a Halloween movie, but that's it, man. Halloween H2O is just bland and boring. And this is a Halloween movie that's got Adam Arkin in it. What the hell is Adam Arkin doing in a Halloween movie? I don't even know who that is. Oh, it's Alan Arkin's son. He plays oh. Jamie Lee Curtis's love interest in H2O. Oh, okay. Like I, when, I, when I think of him, I think of like television dramas from the 90s, like 30-something or something. I, I don't picture him in a Halloween movie. But right. hey, let's, let's, let's bring in all the Dawson's Creek uh, era people, too. Here's Josh Hartnett. There's Michelle <laughs> Williams. Yeah. There's, oh, what's the one? She's got the long brown hair. She's so pretty. And I'm blanking on her name now. But it's just all the late 90s, early 00 era, you know, film and television actors. We're going to cram them all. Here's LL Cool J, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's very little about H2O that's memorable. Although I, I will say one thing, it does give us one really cool iconic shot, even though the movie's crap, that shot of Jamie Lee Curtis looking out through the round uh, window and there's Myers standing right there and they're both like standing an inch apart with only the glass between yeah. them. Yeah. That's a cool shot. I mean, right. when I think of it, sure, I think of that shot. I can't remember a yeah. fucking other thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they probably thought putting Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie would make it automatically good and sell billions of tickets, which I don't know how well it did at the box office, but I, I agree with what you said about it just being a boring movie. Now, I, I'm going to jump ahead for just a second because yeah. I don't want to get, get ahead of ourselves. Sure. And say that one of the interesting things about all these you know, alternate timelines is that with H2O and the 2018 uh, movie, we get to see two totally different ways that Laurie Strode grew up into womanhood. And I have to say that the Laurie Strode of 2018 to me resonates so much more as what her character would have become, what her character would have grown into than the Jamie Lee Curtis of H2O. The Jamie Lee Curtis of H2O, at the time I saw it, I didn't think of anything other than this is Laurie Strode because at, at the time I saw it, I wasn't aware that, you know, graphing continuity was going to be an option more than once. Right. Um, but now that I had the two versions to compare, the Laurie Strode in H2O isn't even really Laurie Strode at all. It's Jamie Lee Curtis in the heart. I'll just say quickly that I viewed the Laurie Strode in the 2018 mm -hmm. movie as a very exaggerated That's version fair. of what I think she would That's turn fair. into. Resurrection. Let's talk yeah. about this 
steaming pile of shit. <laughs> Let's First, do that. As much of a cheat as I thought it was taking that great Halloween four ending and turning it head and head for tails in, in, in Halloween five, taking the ending of H2O and undoing it was like reaching into a turd and finding an even turdier turd. The end of H2O, she drives his body off because she knows he's going to come back to life and then she decapitates him. That's it. Oh my gosh. Of course he's yes. dead now. Cut right. his head off. And so Resurrection opens and everyone writing that movie must have been like, okay, how do we undo this? And they <laughs> did it in the stupidest way possible. Somewhere before that point, Michael Myers had crushed the larynx of an ambulance driver, then switched clothes with him, which, by the way, switching clothes with another person is not a quick feat. Switch clothes with him, put him, the ambulance driver with a Michael Myers mask on, in the ambulance, and I guess somehow knew that Lori would get it in her head to steal the ambulance and behead the guy, because... The only other explanation for that, if you say, well, he didn't know that she was going to head the guy. He was just, this was his way to get away. Since when the fuck has Michael Myers ever worried about getting away? Michael Myers is going to just walk off the scene. He's not going to, yeah. he's not going to look to uh, blend in with a crowd. Yeah. He's not going to look for those plastic glasses with a fake mustache to get away. <laughs> so we find out that Laurie Strode, beheaded a dude and it drove her crazy and now she's in an asylum but she's not really crazy she's just faking it so why is she in the asylum in the first place right and then he comes and he kills her and there's absolutely nothing memorable about that scene at all except maybe <laughs> except maybe uh, her last defiant gesture she kisses him on the the lips <laughs> of the mask before letting go and falling to her yeah, this is another one that falls under being post part five, so I don't have much of a memory about it. But also, in addition to just sucking and everyone in there in the movie is terrible and the script is awful. The other thing that, that really makes Resurrection stand out as being bad is it, whatever the opposite of benefit, it's injured by having unbelievably dated tech. So the idea right. is that Buster Rhymes is a producer, he's going to film a whole bunch of kids going into the Michael Myers house. All the kids have body cams on, but the one girl in the Myers house is in constant contact with a friend who has been, who's watching the show on his internet camera. Yeah. And he is using his cell phone to send her textual messages. So okay. she, she's, she's this great help to everyone because she can look down at her, texting device and get <laughs> words to come across her screen saying he's right behind you or he's <laughs> in the kitchen or whatever. And it does not do the film any favors that texting is so omnipresent these days that yeah. the idea of it being a novelty immediately dates this movie. Right. It's one of those situations where they, they make a technology so prominent in the movie to pretend that it's some space age technology that right. it ends up kind of taking over the story and thus making it extremely dated a year or two later. Right. 
if we assume that no one knew Michael Myers was was going to come back and, and make a beeline for his house, which makes no sense since his motive throughout the series is when to kill family members. Well, you've done that now. All, all your family members are dead. Why are you coming back to your house? But if we assume they didn't know that was going to happen, why did Buster Rhymes think this was going to be in any way an entertaining show, uh, getting 12 kids that just walk around a dark house? <laughs> Keep them hooked until the end when nothing happens. Then at least you had them for the first hour and a half or whatever yeah i mean if 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 this internet show had gone off the way buster rhymes intended it to be it would have been two hours of kids with flashlights saying oh look spider webs (laughs) then hey maybe it would be like a lot of the uh paranormal shows today where they claim to have heard or seen things but we we don't ever ever actually see any actual proof of anything outside of what they claim touche now that's my halloween five is i've always liked those movies more than you are you talking about movies or tv shows oh i'm i'm sorry i was thinking about like paranormal activity those found footage movies well i was actually talking about like ghost hunters and stuff like that (laughs) no show Zach Bagels or whatever his name is. Now well, that's really all I've got on Resurrection because there's just nothing yeah. to really say about the movie. It's a piece of shit. I guess if we follow the timeline, we could go to the next. We could move on to the Rob Zombie remake. Rob Zombie would be next, and yeah, I'll I'll say a lot of hope. Not hopeful is the wrong word. I I wanted to like Rob Zombie's first Halloween movie more than I did. I think yeah. the origin of Michael Myers that Rob Zombie envisioned is creepy and fascinating Then I think after an hour and 15 minutes, Rob Zombie remembered that he has to tell the rest of the movie. And so like the whole Halloween movie is essentially crammed into the last half hour. And that's where I think it, I think that hurt it because it's a longer story to be told. than he allowed himself room to tell at the end because he spent so much time on the origin, but the origin shit is really good. Yeah, I think it's actually more like one hour for the mm-hmm. the rest of the movie that starts where the original one started. But yeah, the original, obviously, probably like an hour and a half. So he definitely had to uh, squeeze it into a much smaller amount of time. I actually don't really think about that when, when talking mm-hmm. about this movie. My thoughts are I, I like this one as its own movie, kind of like the whole Halloween 3 problem. If this one had its own name and was just a Rob Zombie movie, I think it would be more universally loved than it is. Um, Because people always try to compare remakes to the originals and they always want the original to be better. So you're going to have that problem. Well, and I think fleshing out his origin, if we're going to keep it as a Michael Myers movie for a minute, fleshing out his origin made it more and less. It it made it more in that we have a, we have an understanding of how this monster was created. I mean, this monster was created piece by piece by, you know, a horrible stepfather and uh, a sister who was just trash and, and, and brought horrible influences around him. And he had his own sociopathic personality to contend with, but it also makes it less because, okay, that is a great description of the origin of a serial killer. Yeah, but that's not Michael Myers. Michael Myers is this unforgiving shape, this force for evil. He doesn't right. have a, a traumatic childhood. He's he's just evil and dark. Yes. So at I, least I think Zombie made him more than he was, while making him less than he was all at the same time. 
Well, to be fair, I think the reason that he doesn't have a background that leads him to being evil in the original movie is because they just didn't care to cover that part. They wanted to go right right to the shocking beginning right? Um, and approach it that way. But yeah, I, I kind of agree. If, if you're used to Michael Myers being someone with no reason for being that way, which obviously can be a major contributor to making something or someone scary, if there's nothing that caused them to be that way, they just are, that's going right. to be really scary. So I can see how if someone explains it to you later and gives a reason for it, that would take that away from you and uh, make you appreciate it less. I can definitely see that. I agree with you. I like the origin stuff a lot. I actually like the whole movie when viewing it as a Rob Zombie movie. If I try to view it as a retelling of the first movie, then maybe I don't like it as much. But to me, it's just very violent, typical Rob Zombie horror movie that does its job. There's really only a couple things that I personally dislike about it. One of them was, I think John Carpenter publicly agreed with me on this. Why did he need to make him seven feet tall? Both the, the, the parents in the movie were like five and a half feet tall. There's no, <laughs> there's no logic to it. And I think part of the reason that the Michael Myers in the original movie is scary is not because he's seven feet tall. It's because he's normal size. He looks like everybody else, except for the mask, of course. The other thing, aside from him being so tall without logical reason for it, is, <laughs> is that everybody in a Rob Zombie movie, he had to have long hair. So I, <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't understand that either, but I guess that's Rob Zombie's style. I think we've talked enough about the first Rob Zombie Halloween. So what did you think of his part two? I really didn't care for Zombies Halloween 2. There was a lot of weird stuff in there. The visions of Sherry Moon Zombie. And wasn't there like a, a white horse at one point? Yeah. I, I didn't find the hospital part of the narrative to be nearly as smooth as it is in in the original Halloween 2. But the one thing that really made me angry about Halloween 2, and I kind of uh, touched on this before when with you know Michael Myers trying to get away by disguising himself as an ambulance driver. There's a, a a point at the end of Halloween 2 where he's essentially in a standoff with the police. And I remember being really angry going, you know, Michael Myers doesn't get in standoffs with police. He's, he's not a, a human killer. He's this supernatural force. Right. And I got really angry as, because it occurred to me as I was sitting in the theater for that one that we're never going to see my Michael Myers again. If, if they make a sequel to this, it's going to be a sequel to this movie. It'll be this Michael Myers. Because at the time... I never dreamed that they'd be so bold as to go back to the well a second time and just chuck out the whole timeline again. Right. So I, I was needlessly angry at, at the end of Halloween two, but yeah, I just didn't really care for Halloween two, uh, the, the zombie version at all. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one thing I, I'd like to say before I comment more on his H uh, two is the I forgot to mention the end of his Halloween one. He purposely went as far out of his way as possible to make sure the Michael Myers story was done at the end of his first Halloween. They actually shot him point blank in the head and killed him. He did that because I believe he said he doesn't think there should be a Halloween too. He wants that to be the end of the story. Of course, same thing happened that happened with Carpenter. 
Yeah. They, you know, pull up a dump truck full of money, dump it on his front lawn. And he says, well, okay, I guess so. And <laughs> so then he has to come up with an idea to continue it. But uh, the Winston never underestimate the Winston Zedmore rule where uh, Winston in Ghostbusters says, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I believe anything you say. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's a good point. I, I like that you call it the Winston rule, Winston Zedmore rule. I have only watched it once because it's another one that I did not really like at all. I was, I was very bored by it. I do understand that he was trying to do something very different and make it more of an artsy movie with all the, the visions of his family members that he killed telling him to you know finish the job and blah, blah, blah. And I understand that, but I just found it very boring. One, there's one element, and I haven't seen it in years either, so I, I'm really reaching back through the mists of memory here. But one thing that I did think was interesting is there were a, a, a handful of survivors from Rob Zombie's first Halloween, because not only does, does Lori survive, but her friend Annie, played by... Um, Daniel Harris. Daniel Harris survives as well. Yeah. And... We see in Zombie's second movie the aftermath. These two uh, young women have gone through this really horrific trauma, and it's it's affected them obviously. And you don't usually get to see that in horror movies, not least of which because at the end of a horror movie, everyone's dead except for the final girl, and they rarely right. bring a final girl back from movie to movie. So it was interesting to see. You know, these two women who are very scarred and very damaged by what they've been through. That was an interesting element. They don't spend a whole lot of time on it. But but when when they did uh, explore that, I thought that was interesting. But that's literally the only interesting thing I can say about, about Zombie's second movie. I believe pretty much what I said was all I have to say as well. <laughs> um, I, I, I saw it once. I was not a big fan. I was bored by it, but I will give him credit for trying to do something different and trying to do something artistic rather than just continue to try to remake what's already been done again. So he gets credit for that. I definitely give him credit for trying to make sure that he was at, that Myers was absolutely completely dead at the end of part one, <laughs> even though, even though the producers didn't care and made him bring it back anyway. Right. Exactly. If I remember correctly, they tried to get him to come on board for a Halloween 3, which would be a continuation of his Myers story. But he decided he, even though he had already tried to decide he didn't want to do that after part one, he decided again that he wanted to do it even less than never um, when they tried to get him to do part three. Because from what I read, he said he now at this point hated doing remakes because he just gets hate from all angles, no matter if he does it the same or different or whatever. So there's no way to win. I mean, it's not your, it's not your IP. So you don't have, I mean, if you don't come back and do the Halloween two, someone else is going to. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that may have lured zombie back was, do I really want to see what someone else does with uh, a follow-up to my movie? Yeah, basically one of those situations where it was probably like either you come back to do it or we're going to let someone else do it. And, you know, that's going to reflect <laughs> on your name since you started the trilogy or whatever. I don't want to sway you one way or the other, Mr. Zombie, but Joel Schumacher has expressed an interest. Okay, I'm, I'm coming back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so he did two of them, decided he was never going to do another one. So the, I guess that brings us up to 
the 2018. Uh, yeah, the 2018, uh, what do you call it? A remake, reboot, sequel, reboot, another one of these where they try again to restart the timeline. They, they restart the timeline again, uh, this time jettisoning Halloween 2. So this is a direct sequel to Halloween 1. And the, the biggest change that that makes uh, is that Laurie Strode is not Michael Myers' sister. She's just someone who lived through a really bad night back in 1978. I Now, I'm going to differ with you. I, I thought that this made sense as a Laurie. Uh, th- this felt like a Laurie. One thing, and I think someone in the movie e- even expresses this, if you're taking out everything after Halloween 1, so Michael Myers is no longer this legendary killer who's you know comes back every Halloween to you know kill dozens and dozens of people. If this is a direct sequel to Halloween One, then Michael Myers doesn't really stand out as a legend at all, barely even as a killer. He killed what four people total. Yeah, which you know in 21st century America, that doesn't even get you on page one. Right. I mean, it's unfortunate to say that, but it's, it is reality today. Yeah. Um, which does, and this might be uh, kind of agreeing with you a little bit on the, this being an exaggerated lorry, a lorry who has lived through movie after movie after movie would naturally become a survivalist to, you know, create this home full of barricades and traps. I don't know that, that you would do all that if, if your only exposure to this, saga was what you went through in halloween one i mean obviously that would have trauma uh that you'd be living with but i don't know that 40 years later this is how you'd be living through it right yeah that's one of the problems that i had with the way it was done they eliminate everything from the timeline except the original halloween in the original halloween he wasn't really an unkillable supernatural being he just he died at the end they shot and killed him he was dead. Right. So why, but even under normal, he did get up and, and leave because uh, when Loomis runs to the balcony, uh, his body is gone. Maybe I'm not remembering, but I thought that was the beginning of part two that did that. No, no, no. He his body's gone at the end of one. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess my whole point I just made is moot because I've, I've been disproven. <laughs> you debunked me. He could be just someone who would have survived a little bit. You know, maybe he got up yeah. and, and walked home and, and then succumbed to his injury. So yeah. yeah, maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't a fatal shot. I, I don't remember, you know, if they showed where he was I shot. Got him six times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it would have been <laughs> fatal most likely, no matter where it was. <laughs> but I mean the one thing that I like most about the 2018 movie also led to its cheesiest plot point which is Laurie spent 40 years obsessing over Michael Myers. Michael Myers has no idea who the fuck she is. Right. So when he escapes in 2018, she, she's there in the, in the Strode fortress. He's not even thinking about looking for her. He's just walking down the street. Going, there's, a, there's a great scene of him just literally walking down the street, going in each house that he passes, killing everyone, then moving on to the next house. But the, the the cheesy part is the producers are, are thinking to themselves, okay, this is all well and good, but we got to get him with Jamie Lee Curtis at the end. So how do we do that? So they had the yeah. totally cheesy plot point of the, 
the doctor is going crazy and wants to drug him and bring him to Lori's house to force a confrontation for yeah. some reason. I don't even remember why. Yeah, I, that was one of the many things that I thought was just plain stupid and forced. But <laughs> like, yeah, first of all, like she was just one of many people who would still be, you know, traumatized if that happens. Why would it need to be her? I mean, maybe other than the fact that maybe she was the last one he was after before, you know, the end of part one. I had been calling it H4O because it yeah. reminded me so much of H2O. It's like they were just, they were literally rebooting H2O in a way. Ooh, um, you're not wrong. Yeah. And it just seemed like, oh, okay, I guess we have to deal with, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis once again, having Michael Myers come to her house. Let's see. Let's see if it's any different this time. Well, now, uh, what, by that by that logic, in whatever, 16, 17 years, we're going to get Halloween H60. Right. And that one will wipe the original one out of continuity. <laughs> <laughs> so it all starts with Myers being born as a, a baby. That's Myers, <laughs> the early That's another thing that I think is funny is the age of the character by now. Like, how old was he supposed to be in his you know, mid sixties in the no, 2018 movie it made it make sense. He, he would be about, let's say 20 in 1978 because he's about five or maybe a little, let's say eight at, when he kills his sister. And we assume that Lori is a baby at this point, uh, unless she was born after he was uh, institutionalized. Right. So he's about maybe eight years older than his sister. She's 16, let's say, in the, the main movie, which would make him about 24. So tech 40 years in there, I mean, he'd be in his early 60s, which isn't yeah. young, but... Right. Yeah, it's not, not like he's in his 90s, I guess. Yeah, potentially still fit enough to go out and yeah. kill a whole bunch of people. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm sure the... Uh, H6O is going to be a different story, though. So Wait, Halloween H6O colon so very tired. <laughs> Sponsored by Geritol. <laughs> there was, I can't remember where I saw it. I don't know if it was a magazine or whatever. They 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 did um mocked up paintings of all the villains as though they you know age. So it's like Michael oh. Myers with a walker. <laughs> Darth Vader playing shuffleboard or whatever. I wish I could yeah. remember what that was from. It was funny. One thing I really disliked about this movie, obviously it, it was made by fans of the original. So mm -hmm. I guess that's maybe part of this, but there were too many, thanks to South Park, we now refer to as member berries in it. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, it, it seemed like a constant flow of them saying, hey, remember this scene? We redid it and switched the people to each other's place. So now it's the opposite. Hey, remember this scene? Just over and over. Another thing I wanted to point out, I guess this is a matter of taste, but the thing that really made me laugh out loud was when the, the girl's in the basement and saying, oh no, please don't kill me, blah, blah, blah. And she's doing the whole thing where she's supposedly just leading him into being killed. Uh, right. It, she just, it's just so cheesy to me. She does this whole story, you know, oh, please don't hurt me, blah, 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 whatever she was saying. And then, haha, I was fooling you. And then, you know, shoots, uh, she, he gets shot or whatever. That just yeah. seemed so stupid to me. I literally laughed out loud when watching it. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I, I just kind of looked at the entire thing was 
the, the entire thing is saying, hey, remember this scene? Well, we just, you know, switched Lori and Michael and now we recreated the scene in the opposite way. Uh, and I think that's, uh, I, I think that's uh, one of the perils you have when you have um, a franchise entry of anything being made by fans of the original because it's almost impossible not to do member berries. Yeah, and I... I... I kind of almost hate myself because I, I started a while ago at someone's suggestion writing an idea for a uh, Fright Night 3. And, mm-hmm. and I was doing a little bit of that in my writing. So it, it, after seeing movies like Halloween 2018 and others like that, I, I started to hate it and started to hate what I was doing. So, <laughs> so, so now it's like, if I continue writing that, I'm going to have to go back and remove that stuff. But but yeah, I, I agree. It probably is really hard for fans of a movie to not want to put those things in um, as tributes. I just remember the, uh, what was it? One of the Star Wars movies, what, what, the Rogue One. You know, you're sitting there and it's like, hey, kids, remember that walrus man that Ben Kenobi cuts his arm off in the beginning of Star Wars? Here he is before any of that happened. Look, he's got two arms. All right. Well, I think we've pretty much covered everything we have to say right now about the Halloween series and about Halloween 5, especially the entire reason we came on here today because of the uh, anniversary of the release date being October 13th. And this was a lot of fun, but I think I might like to get Nearing back on here soon before oh, Halloween. Glad to come back. Absolutely. And we can discuss some other, some other of our favorite movies that may have been released in October. Yeah, like Hope Floats. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> There's a lot of unplumbed depth to the Hope Floats franchise. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping they'll uh, ignore the first six parts and start uh, a sequel to part nine uh, next. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> All right, well, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for coming on, Nearing. Thanks for having me. All right, we will talk soon. And uh, to anybody listening, make sure you subscribe. And you can hear more of this, this lovely uh, dribbling over movies that I like to do. Have a good night.